Katie's dad used to love to watch the show Antique Roadshow, and I know we'd go over there like on a Saturday, and he'd be sitting watching, and I never could really get into it myself, but I would get a kick out of some of the people's responses, because what they would do is they'd say, you know, I found this in our attic, or this was my great-grandmother's, and I don't really know if it's worth anything or not, and they'd take it to this event where these experts were there that could look at it and date it and know what it really was and, and place a value on it. And sometimes it, it was stuff that really wasn't of any value, and they go, okay, well, thanks for looking at it anyways. But every once in a while, there'd be a piece that would be worth thousands of dollars, and it had been collecting dust in some attic somewhere, and their response would go, I can't believe it's worth that much. I had no idea. It was just you know, sitting in this room or sitting in the attic or out in the garage, we were about to throw it away. I had no idea that it was worth that much. Well, the last two weeks, as we've been preaching through the book of Colossians, we've focused on what it means to have died in Christ. And I've given you that homework ago and, and think about what it means to be dead. But this week, we're going to raise with Christ. And I really want us to spend some time focusing on and being encouraged by the depth of the treasure that we have in the life of Christ. That there is such a depth there that whether you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, maybe you've been teaching Sunday school for decades, going to BSM for decades, and you've been walking with Jesus. You, you know Jesus, and, and you're known by Him. But no matter how long we walk with Him in this world, we will still not exhaust the depth of the riches of God in Jesus Christ. There is still more to uncover. There is still more to learn. There is still more to be encouraged by as we understand who we are and who He is. So I've titled today's sermon, Treasure Hunters. Treasure Hunters. And we're going to pick up where we left off. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians 3. Verse 1, and if you're a guest, we've been in a sermon series titled Jesus First, and really this sermon plays so into the overall theme, this passage plays into the overall theme of Colossians, because Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church at Colossae, who is being tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus and follow false religions, dead religions, the religion of man. What Paul is doing is he is exalting Christ. He is showing the great value of Christ, the superiority of Christ. He is holding Jesus up before them in such a way that they'll see the vanity of all of these other things that they would be tempted to be drawn away into. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God so much in that one verse where he says if then you were raised with Christ that's another what we call a first class conditional clause that's assumed true for the sake of argument the Greek verb that we translate as raised is also in the aorist tense so it's like taking a snapshot a picture of something that's happened and and that event is completed and yet it has implications for us today so a way that you could translate that is, since you have been raised with Christ, here is what it means to your life today. And he did this, we've seen this in this epistle often. In fact, Colossians 2.20, just most recently, 
It says, therefore, if you died, that's another first class conditional clause. Died is in the aorist. So it again could be translated, since you have died with Christ, then here's what that means. And Paul did that also back in Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13. He's saying, these things have taken place. This is what God says about you. This is your spiritual reality. That as you put your faith in Christ, these things are now true of you. You've died with Christ. You've died to your sin. You've died to the principles of the world. You've died to man's religion. You've died. That means it's done. It's over with. And now, see, a dead man can't do anything. A dead woman can't do anything. They have to be raised. The Bible says not only have you died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. And now, you're alive with Christ. But really, even a more pointed way to say it would be this. Since you're dead, the only life that you have is in Jesus. And so then what Paul does is he begins to elaborate on what that life in Jesus really looks like. But again, chapter 3, verse 1, if then, or since you have been raised with Christ, but raised to what? Raised to what? Well, you've been raised to life. That's what's being inferred here. And, and that brings us to our first point. I'm going to give you the point then explain it better. And that's this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are alive now and forevermore. Now, we talked about being dead for two weeks, so I wanted to raise us back up. And, and you're okay to be alive now, okay? And focus on what it means to be alive. But you may think, well, that's kind of a like kindergarten kind of point. Not if you understand the depth of it. Some of you may say, well, I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm sure not dead. I'm sitting here today. I'm kind of checking this stuff out. I want to know what it's more about. What do, you, what do you mean that I'm not alive if I'm not in Jesus Christ? The Bible very clearly teaches that apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sin. So if, if you have any inclination that the Bible is true at all, the Bible says of you that apart from faith in Christ, your condition is dead in your sin. And what that means is that the trajectory that you're on, the path that you're on, the course of your life that you're on, even though you may do things that make you look alive, you are dead in your sin and you are headed to an eternal death. That is your trajectory. So the first thing that we must understand is that as we put our faith in Christ, God takes dead people and makes us alive. That's the first treasure that you have is that it's not just you trying to be a little bit better person. God takes those of us that are running headlong into death and he snatches us up and he identifies us with the death of Christ and, and our sins are now punished in Christ and our sins are now paid for in Christ and we're dead to even death now. So that in Jesus Christ, what we are is we're put on that path to life that's not only just now, but it's forevermore and that path to life is secure. It's not gonna change. We're not gonna wake up one day and God say, well, yeah, I'm kinda tired of you. Why don't you go back on that other path? No, once you're put in the Father's hands, you're His forever. And so the first thing that we must understand is that in Jesus we really have life, and that life is now, and that life is for eternal. And really what we're lacking is not just adding things now to make us comfortable. We're not lacking more friends to make us comfortable. We're not lacking acceptance to 
we're lacking a knowledge and an experience of what it really means to live in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying, treasure hunters. We need to understand, okay, this is true. I have life in Christ. Let's press into that. Let's begin to unfold what is the depth of that. Let's begin to understand what is the joy of that. Let's begin to press into what is the treasure of really walking with Jesus and knowing his life day by day. This was kind of just brought to the forefront of my mind uh, last week. I was talking to one of my friends I grew up with. His name is Nathan. Nathan and I both had times in our life. We grew up really close together, uh, just a few months apart in age. And we both were raised by single moms for a while. Our families had known each other for a long time. We both had some periods where we knew the right to do, but we were in rebellion against it. And I was running from God's call in my life. And then God got a hold of my heart and got a hold of my life. And God began to change me to such an extent that the people at the church that I went to at that time said, Hey, uh, you, we've noticed such a difference in you. Would you be willing to talk to my son or my grandson or my nephew? And I began to disciple youth. And that's ended up how I surrendered to ministry was through God getting hold of my heart and men discipling me and then me working with these teenagers. And, and in the difference that God was making in my life, they asked me to share my testimony on a Sunday night at First Baptist Dallas, which at that point in time, that was my home church, thousands of people there, and the Sunday night services aired live on radio. That was my first time to ever speak in public. I didn't eat. I think it was like a good 24 hours leading up to that event. I was a nervous wreck. I remember not eating, just being completely freaked out, not able to sleep, you know, the night before. I got through the Sunday morning service, and all afternoon I was just like, oh my goodness, would Sunday night please just get here. I'm ready to get this over with. And I shared what God had put on my heart. And guess who was there in that service? My friend Nathan that I had grown up with. And God began to speak to his heart through my testimony. He had seen it, but he, he and I really hadn't sat down and talked about it. And God continued to work in his heart, and, and God transformed his life. And he's married and has kids now, and he and his wife actually have kids through foster care and adoption. And he was taking one of his sons out to go fishing, and his son asked if they could bring a friend along. And they took this 15-year-old boy who's being raised by a single mom, and they took him fishing, and they take him back home. And the mom calls Nathan and says, Man, my son will not stop talking about all the fun he had with y'all. He does not have a male influence in his life. Would you be willing to just allow him to spend some time with you and your family? And now my friend Nathan is able to make a difference in the life of this 15-year-old boy and is loving him and taking the time to spend time with him so that he can share the gospel with him, so that he can share the life of Christ with him. Now, why do I share all of that? Here's the thing, if you're going to share the life of Christ with somebody, if you're going to help somebody and really give them what they need, what do you have to have first? You have to own it first. You cannot give what you don't first own. 
But because Christ made a difference in my life, I was able to share that with Nathan because Nathan had a difference made in his life. He's able to share that with that boy. And we're not going to people and saying, you just need a little bit more education. While we need education, that's just the patch. That doesn't change the heart. While, while you just need a little bit better social standing, well, okay, that might help you in some cases, but that doesn't change the heart. It's powerless to change the heart. It's not that you just need some counseling. While counseling can help, counseling in and of itself cannot change the human heart. What we need is for God to reach in and take out our dead heart of stone and bring us to life. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you not only have been made alive, you now, believer in Jesus Christ, you have life to offer to those in need. You not only have life, you have something. And you may think, well, yeah, but I'm not a, a big speaker. I'm not a bold leader. That doesn't matter. God has put somebody in your path. It doesn't matter how shy or how introverted or it doesn't matter how incapable you feel. God has saved you. God has made you alive. And God has put somebody in your sphere of influence that you can share that message of life with. What a great treasure to be able to take the life of Jesus and share that with others. That in and of itself is a wonderful gift to explore, isn't it? Let's continue on Colossians 3, 1. Let's just look, at, let's read this verse again. If then you were raised with Christ, okay, if that's true, seek those things which are above. We're going to skip that for a minute. We're going to come back to that last. Where Christ is seated, uh, uh, sitting, excuse me, at the right hand of God. So first of all, we need to establish where Christ is and what that has to do with our life now. So we're to seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Christ, first of all, <laughs> he's seated. That refers to his completed, his finished work. And, and I didn't have, we don't have time this morning to go over all the verses that talk about how Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there are many. But there's one place as I was looking him up this week that was interesting where Jesus is standing. Stephen, the first Christian martyr he is uh taken out and he's being stoned to death they're throwing large rocks to basically i mean it's a violent death they're pummeling him with rocks until he dies and in that moment what we would say is a moment of great injustice he looks up and he sees a vision of jesus and he sees jesus standing at the right hand of the father Every other place in Scripture, Jesus is seated, referring to his work that is finished. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's, he's seated. He's waiting for that day when the Father looks at him and says, Son, it's time to bring the rest of the family home. But right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the, the Father. But as Stephen is dying, Jesus stands to say, Come home, my child. But we must understand that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That means that his work is done. There's nothing to be added to it. There's nothing more to do. All there is is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's seated at the right hand. The right hand is a place of, of power, of prominence, of authority. That's a place of privilege. I mean, that is where the best is seated, is at the right hand. And that's Jesus. He is seated at the right hand of who? Of the Father. Of God the Father. Now, what does that have to do with our life? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you're in Colossians, flip over to the left. 
just a little bit, not much. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to show you what it has to do with your life. Do you see Jesus? He's there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's died. He's risen. His work is complete. He's waiting for that day when he returns to bring us home. But it's not just him that is seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us. Okay, got to get it clear. Because of God's mercy, because of his love, these things are true. Even when we were, what? Dead. In trespasses, that means we're dead in our sin. That is the course of our life. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us as we've preached through um, Colossians, there are times when Paul puts the prefix soon on some words, and it's like it means co, it means together. He did it in Colossians. He does it here in Ephesians. He's saying when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together. He co-made us alive with Jesus, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. That's another soon. He co-made us alive. He co-raised us. And then here's, here's, we don't find this as readily available in Colossians. Paul just comes right out with it. Look, and made us sit together in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. That is another soon. It is a co-term, and it's not talking about just us sitting together. It's meaning that we were raised with Jesus, we were made alive with Jesus, and we were made to sit with Jesus. What this is saying is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and according to the Father, what the Father is saying is that we're with Jesus as well. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are seated with Jesus spiritually at the right hand of the Father. That almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? Almost, is that, can that really be true? Yes, it is. In fact, Jesus in the churches, in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, he even talks about that. To he, he who overcomes, I'll grant it to him to sit on my throne with me. Can you imagine? We, according to God, God's perspective, and what God declares is true, that's reality. We have died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we've made alive together with Christ, and God, when he looks over at his son, at his right hand, he not only sees Jesus, but he sees all the family of God already sitting there with him in heaven. That's hard for me to take in. Now, what does that mean to our lives? Well, I was reading one commentator that said, where I sit determines uh, how I walk. Where I sit determines how I walk. Oh, that's kind of odd. But think about it this way. The Queen of England, when she sits on the throne, she's really the only one that can sit on that throne. That is her throne. Why? Because she's the queen. That is her identity. That is her authority that comes with who that she is. And as she sits on the throne and she issues decrees, there is power and that is an authority that comes because of where she sits. She sits on the throne. Now, when she gets off the throne, does she cease to be the queen? No, she still has all of that power and authority. You see, where she sits determines how she walks. As she sits on the throne, she is recognized. This is the queen of England. She has power. She has authority. But it's not only as she sits on the throne. It's the fact that she sits on the throne also determines the course of her life. So with for instance, like the, the president, who sits behind the desk in the Oval Office in the White House? The president of the United States. 
Who else has the right, the authority, the power to sit there? No one else. It's the President of the United States that sits there. And because of where he sits, it also determines his walk. So if we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, then that should mean something to our day-to-day walk. And I believe it means at least two things. Number one is this. In the heathen religions of the first century in which the church at Colossae existed, if you worshiped a false god, here's what you could do. You could go into the temple of that false god and you could bring sacrifices. And you would, in essence, worship that false god. You were appeasing that god. You were playing to that God saying, I need your approval in this. I need you to help me in this. And so you would go into the temple and you would perform an act of worship and then you would leave. And there was an absolute disconnect from the way you lived and the worship that you just brought. The worship that you brought had nothing to do with how you lived your life leaving that place. It was just, this is what I do in this place and now I go out and live my life. It was the pagan culture. <laughs> well, I go to church on Sundays. Isn't that enough? I'm going to lay my worship down here, and then I'm going to go live my life. Man, who you are in Jesus, it should overtake every fiber of your being. It's not about from 10.15 to 11.30 on Sunday mornings. It's about every breath that you take, every place that you go, every dime that you spend, everything that you do is about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the only life that I have is because he has made me alive. So that's the first thing that has to do with our life. Here's the second thing it has to do with your life. And this is, again, where I want to really focus in on the encouragement that we find in this life. It's really, I mean, it really is encouraging. If I am seated in the heavenlies with Jesus right now, okay? Now, maybe I didn't do as good of a job of this to build this up, but there's really no better place to be seated. There's no throne above the throne of Jesus Christ. He is King of kings, He is Lord of lords. He's over all. And the Bible says that I'm seated with Him. Now, if that's true, what's over your head? Nothing. That means that whatever comes across my plate, that means that whatever happens in my life, that means whatever enemy comes against me, that means whatever trouble comes my way, it's already beneath my feet because I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It means that in Jesus Christ, I have the power and the authority, and I have been made who I need to be to overcome. It's not something I work for. It is something that I live out of. It's already accomplished. Do you see the encouragement there? It means that as a child of God, you never draw the short straw. You are always enthroned with the King of kings, Lord of lords, and that is the way that you approach life, if you choose to. Now, you say, but what about when life gets messy and I'm hurt and there's family troubles or there's an illness or I'm misunderstood or I've messed up, I've made a mistake this week and there's consequences or things, just life happens and I don't feel like I'm enthroned with Jesus. 
Did you hear what I said? And I don't feel like I'm enthroned with Jesus. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. If you wait to feel like you're enthroned with Jesus, well, that train may never come. But if I go to God's word and say, this is what God's word says, and this is who I am, and so by faith I choose to live from that perspective, then you are already walking in the victory. Because here's what God does in his goodness. Listen to me very closely. James 1 makes this perfectly clear. Romans 8 makes this perfectly clear. The goodness of God, and I don't mean goodness as in good, better, best. I mean goodness in his character and his attribute that he is good. That is who he is. The goodness and the mercy and the greatness and the love of God means that my God is so big that he takes the hurt of my life. He takes the disappointment of my life. He takes when I'm misunderstood, when I have failed, when other people have failed me, when I have been hurt, when life has not gone my way, when people have died, when the doctor has given me a bad diagnosis, when life is going contrary to what I think is good, my God is still so good that he can take all of that in his arms of love and he uses it in my life somehow for good. That's what he's promised to do. James 1, Romans 8, look it up. You have a God that is so big that he will take the most hurtful things that could absolutely take place in your life, and he'll go, those aren't bigger than me. Let's just see the good that we can bring out of that. And when we begin to understand that we're already enthroned with him in the heavenlies, then we'll understand that no matter what happens to us, it's already beneath our feet because we are enthroned with Jesus. You know, not every struggle automatically makes you better, though. That's the one caveat. There are people that when struggles come into our lives, we don't turn to the Lord. We don't go to him with it. And we become bitter and angry and hard and self-sufficient, we think. You see, struggles alone don't make you a better person. Did you know that? There's a lot of bitter people in this world. Struggles alone don't make you a better person. It's how you respond to them. And through Jesus Christ in his goodness, God can take the most hurtful things of this world and actually use them to make you better. Isn't that amazing? But let's, let's we need to get done. And, and really all of that has been to build what, what I really want to close with that I think will be the most encouragement to you this morning. But let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read it one more time, and we're going to get that middle part that we've kind of skipped over. If then you were raised with Christ, okay, since you've been raised with Christ, raised to what? Raised to life. Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now look at the very middle of that verse. Seek those things which are above. The word that we translate as seek is actually an imperative it is a command and it is in the present tense so it is a command of Paul saying in light of this being true in light of the fact that you have been raised to new life then you are commanded as a believer in Jesus Christ to habitually to continually to make it a pattern of your life to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the pattern of your life is to be a treasure hunter, 
to be seeking the things of heaven, the glory of Christ, the riches of God, to have your focus so set that you say, you know what, I've come to realize the things of this world are fleeting. They will not satisfy. Therefore, I'm going to go to the one who has made me alive, and I'm going to make the pattern of my life to be pressing into him and finding the richness of who he is and finding the glory of who he is and peeling back the layers every day more and more and more to understand all that I have in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, believer, that is to be the pattern of your life. You know what? When it is, you will not be disappointed. But can we do that? I mean, is that even realistic? It is because of one thing. You can have that life because of one thing. Because Jesus sought you first. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, his seeking of us makes our seeking of him possible. What do I mean by that? Well, Luke 15 is such a great passage to go to to understand this. Jesus told three parables. And the first parable he told was about a man that had 100 sheep, and one of the sheep goes missing. And what he does is he leaves the 99 to go seek the one that is lost. And he goes and he stays gone until he finds the one that's lost and he takes that one and he puts that one that was lost on his shoulders and he carries it home and he rejoices and he even calls his friends and he says rejoice with me this one that was lost is now found I've sought it out it's found and there's rejoicing at the one that was lost that is now found why because the shepherd sought the sheep that was lost then Jesus tells a second parable about a woman who has 10 coins and one of the coins goes missing. And so she, in essence, tears up her house. She, she doesn't care about those nine coins right now. She sets them aside to focus on the one that is lost. I mean, there is a level of care, but really her focus is on what's lost. And she even turns up her house upside down and she makes a mess. Looking for the one that was lost, seeking the one that was lost. And then when she finds the one that was lost and now it's found, she calls her friends and she goes, rejoice with me. This one that was lost is now found. Then Jesus tells a third parable about two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son goes to his father and says, Father, give me my inheritance now. An insult to the family, an insult to the father. But the father in love and kindness and mercy gives the son what he asked for, and the son wastes his inheritance in a far-off land, and he becomes so poor. There's a famine in the land. and becomes so poor that, listen, he's not eating the pig slop. Some people misunderstand that. They say he's eating the pig food. It does not say that. It says that he desired to eat even the pods that the pigs ate. Now, you know it's bad. You're not even getting pig slop. You're just desiring to have some of the pig slop. That's how poor he is. That is a picture of us in our sin. We're dead. We're hopeless. We need to be rescued. And the son came to his senses and said, I, I can't keep going on this. If I just return to my father's house, even his servants have it better off than this. That right there, listen, is a picture of dead religion. The idea that I'm going to return to the father and I'm going to work and then he'll let me be in his house. How many of you think, well, I've been really bad and I've been a down and outer, but if I'll just be good enough, God will accept me. You're on a failed path. You're still on the path to death. 
But when he comes home, the father is looking because it says the father saw him from a great way off. The father seeking the son. And the son that had done everything wrong, that had brought shame to his father, that had been shame to his family, that had squandered the wealth, the father not only was looking, but when the son comes up and he talks about, well, let me just be a servant, the father will hear nothing of it. It's actually an affront to the father's love to say, let me earn it. The father says, I'll have nothing to do with that. Here, take this ring and put it on his finger and take this robe and put it on. He's been restored. That son of mine which was lost is now found. And there's a great reason for rejoicing. Listen, your good works are an affront to the love of God. But there is a heavenly father who has left everything to seek you And because he has sought you first, you can spend the rest of your life seeking him. You can spend the rest of your life understanding the treasure that Jesus is, understanding the treasure of his spirit dwelling in you, understanding the treasure of who you are as a child of God enthroned in the heavenlies. You can. It is actually possible. It is a reality that is open to you that because Jesus has sought you out, now you can obey the command of Colossians 3.1 and you can make it the pattern of your life to seek the things which are above that can really be you you know that brings us to our third and final point i need to wrap up if you are a believer in jesus christ life is a continual treasure hunt of finding what you already have and who you already are in jesus and that's the difference who you already are and what you already have it's already yours you're not earning it you're not working towards it it's been given to you that's grace And allow the grace of God to change your heart to where then you become consumed with knowing the treasure more and more and more. There's a lot of treasure shows, treasure hunt shows on, right? Uh, There are books that have been written, bestsellers about treasure hunting. There are people that leave their jobs and go on these crazy quests to find treasures. And what they're doing is they're looking for something that was once somebody else's. Somebody else owned it. And now they want to find it and they want to become wealthy based on somebody else's wealth. And they want to find that and they want to make it theirs. In Jesus Christ, what we have is a treasure that's already ours. It's ours in Jesus. And this is why I want to press this home. This is why I want to make this point. And and this is it. And I'll close. When we begin to understand the depth of what we have in Jesus... It will settle your heart. What do I mean by that? Well, what happens when you get really hungry? You do whatever you have to do to get food and eat, right? What happens when you're just feeling lonely? Man, you're going to go out and try to find people that will help you not feel lonely. What happens if you convince yourself that there's some thing in this world that you really need Man, if you get convinced of that, you'll go out, you'll get it. If you could afford it, great. If you can't, you'll go into debt because you are convinced that you need this thing, right? When our hearts are unsettled and we're just chasing things, when we're hungry and we have to go get that, we know what it is to have this desire and then to go after it. We know what it is to have this sense of, it's just like something's not complete and I need something else to make me feel at peace. I need something else to make me feel at rest. I would 
encourage you this week to ask God to show you the depth of the riches of God that you already possess in Jesus Christ. And when you begin to understand the depth of God's riches towards you in Jesus Christ, it will settle your heart. You won't feel like you have to run and chase after the things of the world to be at peace because you already have what you need in Jesus. And actually what will happen is when your heart's already settled in that peace, you can actually relate to the things of the world in a healthy way instead of making them idols. When your heart is already settled and you're at peace in Jesus, you can be the spouse, the mother, the father, the grandparent that you want to be the family member you want to be because you're not making that family an idol. You're not expecting that family to fulfill you. You're already fulfilled in Jesus. So then you can operate out of that settled heart towards your family. In regards to your finances, the difficulties that you may go through when you already realize that you have what you need in Jesus and God has promised to supply your daily need, your heart can be settled so that you can relate to your finances in peace. You have a choice to spend the rest of your life grasping after things, hoping that you'll finally get enough to settle your heart. And that's where many people live for the majority of their lives. Or we can understand the joy of the treasure that is already ours in Jesus Christ. And having that settle our hearts, then from a very healthy place, we can relate to our family, we can relate to the world, we can relate to possessions, we can relate to things, having our hearts already content in Him. So this morning, I want to just read that verse one more time to close. It says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. I hope that this week you can spend some time just focusing in on asking God to help you to understand. I mean, what would it do if we could begin to really understand the fullness of God's richness towards us in Jesus Christ? I hope we can begin to understand it this week, and I hope that it will encourage your hearts this week as you see that. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, these things are not yet true of you. You're still on the path that's destination is death. But I would say there's good odds that if you're here today hearing this message that God is drawing you to himself today to change trajectory, to change your path, to know the life that is in Jesus and to begin to be an ambassador of that life to others. And that doesn't happen again by your good works. That is an affront to God's love. But when we come to him and we say, I'm not good enough, nor will I ever be good enough, but you love me anyway, then we're in a good place. Then we're in a place to receive, to receive his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. And the wonderful thing about the gospel that's so amazing is that at one hand we admit how dead in our sin we are, and yet on the other hand, we admit how loved and valued we are in Jesus Christ. It's this great duality of the gospel that we are beyond hope and yet dearly loved. 
And as we turn from our way and put our faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives us of our sins. He fills us with his spirit. He changes the complete course of our life, and he sets us on the path of life. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, that's what we want to invite you to today, is to believe upon Jesus that you might truly live. For most of you, you've already done that. I want to encourage you, your homework this week is think about what life in Jesus really is. Think about what it really means to sit at his right hand. Think about what it means to seek him, to make that the pattern of your life, to seek the things that are above, to come to have your heart settled by the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. I believe you'll be encouraged by it this week. I'm going to bow my head and close my eyes as a way of of focusing in on God, and and I want to close this in a time of prayer. I invite you to, to join me in that as well, and and. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, it's time. It's time for you to step out of the path of death and into the path of life in Jesus. A specific prayer doesn't pray you. Faith in Christ is by which we're saved. Through God's grace, as we call out to him, God saves us. Now I invite you to call out to Jesus, to just tell Jesus what's in your heart. Tell him what you believe. Say, dear God, I believe that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe Jesus died for me, for my sins in my place. That Jesus rose again from the grave, that he is at the right hand of the Father, right there with you, Lord God. So I ask you, because of Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Take me from death to life. And come live your life through me from this day forward. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving my soul. And if you're here today, believer, and you came maybe today just at the end of your rope, you're thinking, man, I, I need to hear something. I need somehow, something's got to change. You sit at the right hand of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You sit at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. Your God loves you. Lord Jesus, this week, help us to understand the riches that we have already right now in you. Settle our hearts in who we are in you. And thank you that you take even the hurts of this life, and in your goodness, you turn them around and you use it for our good. May we trust you to that degree to see that work in our lives And to see your glory come through us, these weak vessels. Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are and the encouragement of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.